All right, so understand that the article I'm about to read to you, and I am just going to read it to you instead of putting it up on the screen, so, uh, but because it's just it's so much editing work for me to for me to do that and go back and forth uh, to my reaction. So anyway, point is, um, I'm going to read through this, and again, just I want to comment on some things because I think that there's stuff in this interview in that's even more. In this article, I keep calling it an interview. I'm sorry. They interviewed her for this article. But there's so many things in here that I just, again, I don't know. So it says, as a teenager in the late 90s, Esme Bianco was a huge Marilyn Manson fan. And then it goes on to describe, I'm not going to read it for you, this part, but it goes on to describe how she was this huge Marilyn Manson fan when she was a teenager. It says, seven years later, when Bianco got... Sorry. When Bianco got the chance to meet Manson in person, she was thrilled. But she says the encounter led to years of psychological torment and violence that derailed her acting career and left her with physical scars and PTSD. Now, the mention here of derailing the, uh, the acting career, that's going to come up again in a moment and have a little bit of a problem with this, too. We'll see. She says he went from being a massive role model who really helped her through some incredibly dark and difficult times as a teenager to a, quote, monster who almost destroyed me and almost destroyed so many women. And then it goes on, the article goes on to describe um, sort of the, the basic background of this and Evan Rachel Wood's accusations and, and so on and so forth. All right. Uh, it's really surreal, she says over Zoom from her Los Angeles living room. The 38-year-old redhead takes off her glasses and wipes away a tear. Talking about Manson sends her body into flight mode. But more recently, it also fills her with what she calls a dragon-like strength. Dragon-like. Now, what is this a reference to Game of Thrones? I mean, do you see how obvious, and again, I'm faulting the media for this as well, but do you see how, how obvious this is? They're, they're trying to tie it in with the Game of Thrones stuff again. I mean, this is not, this is not real news. This is, this is sensationalized uh, news as entertainment, which, you know, we know is a thing. It's everywhere. Anyway, she says uh, it fills her with what she calls a dragon-like strength. Quote, I have this hot energy and power in my chest. I just want to open my mouth and be like, ah, and rain fire down, she tells me, sticking out her tongue and waving both hands. All right, so... I don't know. I know that a number of people would say, well, good for her. She's a domestic abuse uh, survivor. So whatever way she wants to express the, the strength that she feels now, great. But again, all I can tell you is how it strikes me. And it strikes me as being strange. It's a strength Bianco says she didn't have while playing Roz, a character on Game of Thrones who works in a brothel and is abused in ways that mirror the actress's personal life. So, okay, again, here, we're just going to, they're just going to really lean into this Game of Thrones metaphor just so they can make this article, like, like really, you know, cool. So she talks about this uh, and a bit, and then it says, it, then it gets into the meat of the, the story here, all right? And this is where I'm, I'm most interested in it. It says, Bianco met Manson in 2005 through his then fiance, Dita Von Teese. Both women are burlesque performers, and Von Teese said the rock star wanted to meet Bianco. And so she talks about her excitement to meet him. She says that Manson wanted to cast her in Phantasmagoria, the horror film he had planned to make based on the works of Lewis Carroll. 
and she says that after now I keep that in mind so Phantasmagoria is a movie that Manson very much wanted to make and it just never got off the ground to the extent that it was made uh, it was one of those works in progress and this is important because of something that Esme is going to claim in a moment so keep this in mind that he had this this project that he was working on for a long time it was going to be this big film project that he was very was going to be very proud of but it didn't end up really totally getting off the ground so she talks about you know how after manson's divorce uh that they kept in touch and they had this friendship and she said they would exchange sometimes flirty emails uh but she says their relationship was platonic and she got married the next year all right now, so that dynamic changed in 2009 after Manson sent Bianco a plane ticket from her home in London to L.A. Now, this is where that's going to describe this encounter that she's already described where um, he tells her they're going to film a movie and then he ties her up and he whips her on that last that last day when they're filming the last scene. After it says Manson sent Bianco a plane ticket from her home in London to L.A. so she could star in the music video for his song, I Want to Kill You Like They Do in the Movies. He explained that it would be shot on a flip camera for a home video feel and would involve Manson kidnapping, quote, kidnapping Bianco in his home. She says that Manson said, quote, I need to have a victim or a lover. Yeah, he wrote in an email. Um, he said, quote, you are going to have to pretend to like being manhandled by me. Sorry. Now, look, maybe he didn't. And again, we don't know what he said. I have a feeling he prepared her better than this. That's just my own personal belief. But he says here, look, basically, we're going to do a video in which you are going to be the victim. And sorry, you're going to have to have me manhandle you. To me, what that would indicate, especially given that it's Marilyn Manson, is that, okay, there's probably going to be something scary or physically uncomfortable or problematic about this. And I would think, you know, that they would have had more of a conversation about it. But you know what? Maybe, maybe not. Um, so she says, once she arrived, she says, the line between art and reality immediately blurred. Bianco, who was 26 at the time, okay, 26, this is what I was talking about, all right? So when the relationship, when this first bad thing happened to her, she was not a teenager. Those of you who've been saying that he only, there were some people who said that he only does this kind of shady stuff with younger people that he can manipulate. Well, this was not a younger woman. I'm sorry, by any definition, even even the way in which, you know, the younger generations now are developmentally stunted, you, uh, I'm sorry, but uh, the 26 is a grown woman and certainly should be expected to have some sense of agency, okay, in, in, in this. And, and so anyway, uh, it says she was 26 at the time. She spent the next three days in lingerie. Oh, the horror, lingerie. Um, she says, uh, next three days in lingerie, barely eating or sleeping, with Manson serving up cocaine rather than food. Okay, you know, I like the way that they mention barely eating and sleeping as if, you know, to, to make us imagine that he's starving her and that there the sleep deprivation that some of the victims like to have, have, have brought up, that that's occurring. But wait a minute, then they give us this detail at the end of the sentence that he'd been serving up cocaine all weekend. Well, you know what? Some people would consider that to be a good host. Um, <laughs> hey, come to my house and I will give you unlimited amounts of cocaine. Uh, you know, again, it may not be everyone's cup of tea. I'm not saying that it's my cup of tea either. I just wouldn't turn it down. But uh, but no, seriously, uh, you know, 
come on. They they were up. Can you read between the lines on what may have been going on here? Is that he he brings her over for them to to shoot this artistic video, and he likes cocaine, and so they stay up all weekend doing cocaine. So yes, she wasn't eating much, and yes, she wasn't sleeping much. All right, I'm 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 still you know we haven't gotten to I know the the bad part yet, but I'm just wanting you to be aware of how, and you know this right? I mean everything you read in the media, you know left right center and apolitical whatever like it, it's it's always got a slant and the problem is when people don't realize that and they don't read critically all right so it says manson serving up cocaine rather than food she remembers him losing his temper and throwing the camera at a smoke alarm oh my god he threw the camera at a smoke alarm oh the horror uh all right Soon, she says, he became violent. Okay, so here's the climax. Now, understand again, like I said earlier, she's already been there. She's there for three days, okay? And so far, no violence has occurred, except he's thrown the camera at a smoke alarm. So this is this, like, out-of-control, sadistic, horrible man that we are led to believe is, is such an abuser and such a threat, and nothing basically has happened until the very last scene, okay? So soon she says he became violent, tying her with cables to a prayer kneeler, lashing her with a whip, and using an electric sex toy called a violent wand on her wounds. The same kind of torture device Wood has said was used on her. Now, you know, we don't have time for me to get into talking about the violet wand. I did do some research on it, and uh it it is it's it's depicted as being this torture device and no i'm sure that it's not pleasant if you're not into it but it basically from what i read it gives off uh, a sensation of like a kind of a static electricity type shock now maybe someone will correct me on that and say that it's worse but again what i'm trying to point out to you is that you have to again be aware of how everything is being contextualized and slanted a certain way for you so i don't know you know i i again i'm mistrustful of these characterizations because i've seen how in other ways they're slanting things uh and from what i read up on the violent wand and i even saw a demonstration video uh maybe i'll put it in here where a guy's being shocked by one it it, it doesn't look like something that uh, is, is just this awful torture device. And again, she wasn't saying no. And she she's and she's this uh, and she's here for this this extreme video. And, you know, I mean, she she doesn't claim that she says no. So, uh, again, I don't know. I mean, OK, so anyway, she says um, Bianca was was terrified, but tried to calm down by telling herself, it's just Manson being theatrical. We're going to make great art. Again, no mention of saying no or voicing any kind of... She, uh, she doesn't even indicate that she told him she was in pain. While waiting for her flight back home, Bianca sobbed. At the time, she felt sad to leave Manson and considered her wounds to be proof of their bond. Now, notice this. This is interesting. This is kind of a strange tell, actually. Uh, it says that she was sobbing. And of course, what do you think at first? You think that she's sobbing because she's just been through this traumatic experience. But then what does it say? The sentence right after that, it says that she felt sad to leave Manson and consider her wounds to be proof of their bond. She's crying because she does. It says basically she's crying because she doesn't want to leave. So again, like it's, it's like it's not even it's kind of contradicting even itself, this article. 
um, on some level. And so then it gets into how it, it, she's she's it says that she realizes on some level that this wasn't healthy, typical BDSM practice where you have safe words and says that she uh, she went back home and she mentioned nonchalantly to her roommate what had happened. And her roommate was a, a fetish artist, so is into this stuff. And the roommate said, you know, well, you shouldn't be actually physically injured. You know, it's never about actual physical injury and so on and so forth. And, and that's what that's what the roommate claims. Again, you know, what's interesting is that she's even acting. The, the roommate even says that she acted nonchalant. Right. So, so far, the indications that we're getting is is one of someone who is not speaking up to anyone voicing a complaint with this. All right. And again, I, I know that that could be happening in cases of, of, of legitimate abuse and domestic violence. But in the absence of evidence and given, again, the particularities of this situation and who Manson is and everything, again, we can have skepticism. We can have quite a, a bit of skepticism. All right, so it talks about, um, it says that Ma uh, Manson never sent her footage from that trip, and she says he made constant excuses for not yet releasing the video, and he never released the video. Now, this is depicted here as being something sinister, and what they're trying to say here is that he, he never had any intention of this actually being a legitimate movie or a legitimate project and he merely uh, used it as a pretext to get this woman here so that he could get his sadistic kicks out of whipping her and, you know, keeping her up with cocaine all weekend. And uh, so they would have us believe that, yes. But then remember what I told you about the uh, Phantasmagoria movie? That there was this major movie that Manson was preparing for and excited about and it and was was prepping and and I think even shot footage for and it just never finally got off the ground. So it, this is not unusual for Manson or for other artists to have various projects in the works, either um, uh, mainstream projects or kind of their own off offbeat, you know, even personal stuff. But anyway, uh, it is not unusual for them to have projects that don't pan out. And we know this because it already happened with Manson. It happened with uh, Phantas, ended up happening with Phantasmagoria. And so, you know, it's, it's entirely possible to me that he really did, he really did consider himself shooting uh, a music video or the makings of a music video. And it was a legitimate art project, especially again, since they didn't have sex. Okay. And, um, and, and since it really, they only got violent at the very end in the sort of climactic scene that he had warned her to some degree, it sounds like about. And so my point is, it, you know, it just because the movie was never finished, just because he didn't give her the footage, I, I don't know necessarily what that means, okay? All right, then it says that after all of this, they began a long-distance affair. Now, look, I'm not going to shame somebody who is married to someone and is cheating on them because there are circumstances where I think that is understandable. And, and honestly, whether you're cheating on someone or not doesn't mean that you deserve to be abused. It doesn't at all, right? However, they just, uh, this article just sort of like quickly like passes over these things. I guess what I'm trying to say to you is, it's not like this woman did not have other avenues of support in her life. I just don't see it. Uh, and so they began a long distance affair. Uh, he would visit her on his trips to London and arrange for her to travel and stay at hotels in LA. 
So in March, now this is the part where she says she's trafficked. This is what she continue, could, contends is her trafficking. In March 2011, two years after the music video shoot, Manson asked Bianco to move in with him and promised to help her get a visa while she figured out her acting career. To help with the immigration paperwork, his team gave her a written agreement stating that she would star as a nurse in his forthcoming feature film, oh, this is where it's mentioned, Phantasmagoria, with rehearsal starting in mid-July. At that point, she remembers her eyelashes were falling out from stress and she was having daily panic attacks, all of which she chalked up to being apart from Manson, the man she thought she was in love with. Now, again, I thought that they were going to say that her eyelashes and stuff were falling out because she was in this, she had this abusive experience and was in this, sucked into this cycle. But it says, no, it's, it's actually because she missed being away from him. Uh, okay. She'd also recently filmed the first Game of Thrones season and was keen to land bigger Hollywood roles. She would end up being in three seasons of Game of Thrones. There was nothing left to lose, so she thought, why not jump off the cliff and hope that something catches me? Within a, roughly a week, Bianco had left her husband and moved from London to Manson's West Hollywood apartment. And so, as she describes it, I'm not going to finish this because I do, we have, you know, don't have all the time in the world and I do want to move on to some other stuff. But, um... This is what she says was her big, was her trafficking, uh, being trafficked. Uh, he says, come to LA, I'll help you out with your visa, which it sounds like he did. Okay. And then right, in, instead of being financially destitute, she ends up landing what would be the biggest role of her career. I mean, this, this is not some woman who was like this, this like poor, infantilized, extremely like vulnerable, no sense of agency, no other support system in her life. Nothing. No, no. Um, it just doesn't make, it just doesn't make sense. Okay. Anyway, the point is, uh, she and Rachel Wood, Evan Rachel Wood, did this testimony uh, in front of some California legislators trying to get this Phoenix Act passed. And the Phoenix Act is this piece of legislation that Evan Rachel Wood basically created and, and wrote and was promoting to extend the statute of limitations on um, sex crimes uh, or domestic violence. Okay. Anyway, the point is, I want to look at I want to look at uh, Esme's testimony, a bit of her testimony, and then I also want to look at Evan Rachel Woods. And um, there's several things that I want to point out. Before he succeeded in his seduction, my abuser carefully groomed me, manipulating and gaslighting me over a number of years of friendship. He knew that I was easy prey. I had neither power nor control over my life. The previous intimate relationship had stripped me of both, and so I was led from the frying pan into the fire. Initially, he was charming, intelligent, funny. He told me I was his soulmate. By the time I was living with him, he controlled every aspect of my life. When I was a teenager, I met a man. I looked up to him in many ways and felt like we had a special bond and I had no intention of it turning into something romantic. When it eventually did, I wasn't sure how to stop it as he had a certain charisma and power and I quickly surrendered to his charms. She says he had a certain charisma and appeal, and I quickly surrendered to his charms. Now, the, again, the image that she's painting of herself is of someone with with absolutely like almost like a like an automaton, like something or a puppet that's just completely controlled by someone else. And I'm sorry, but that is not the impression that's given off in the interviews that she did at the time. And I know people, you know, say, well, maybe those are worth nothing. She's just putting on. And she certainly could have. But again, it's a contradiction. We do have these contradictions that I said in my last video. I don't know what they mean, but to assume that they that he must be guilty 
when we do have these contradictions, I, I, it's, it's problematic to say the least. And so, you know, if you, and you can go and look at it yourself, uh, and you can listen to my other video on this, but if you, if you read the interviews that she did while she, that Evan Rachel Wood did while she was dating Marilyn Manson, and even after some of them, um, she, she talks uh, in a very sort of like strong, free way about how she, you know, was attracted to this, this edginess and this, she was looking for, you know, danger and excitement and, that it was a very healthy relationship. She said this in interviews, that people would be surprised at how healthy their relationship was and that he was supportive and that she became a musician partly because of him and through his support and that he also ensured that when uh, she did that music video with him, the heart-shaped uh, glasses, um, this music video that they did when they started dating, and that uh, it said in this article, she said that he ensured that she would be paid more than any actress had been paid up to that point to be in a music video. That was very important to him. I mean, it's just, I know that relationships can be complex. They can be multifaceted and you can project one thing or experience one thing and then also be terrorized, especially when there's drugs and alcohol or whatever involved. And again, it's, it's very possible, but it, the, mud, the waters are very muddy on this in terms of their contradictions all over the place with everybody, including Marilyn Manson, right? Um, and, you know, someone brought up his autobiography, so I want to address that here. Uh, comment after comment uh, saying that, uh, look, how do you even, how do you even doubt that he did these things when all you have to do is read his autobiography, Manson's autobiography, and see all of the, the sick things that he did? Well, here's the thing about the autobiography is that it's probably, it's probably fiction and it, the juiciest parts are probably fictionalized. And I realize that that is a convenient thing for me to assert if I'm, if I'm arguing that we should give his innocence the benefit of the doubt. It fits in with my argument to say that. Um, and, you know, why, and why am I taking Evan Rachel Wood's interviews seriously if I'm not taking Manson's autobiography seriously? I don't know which to take seriously and which not to. I guess that's what I'm saying. But there are really strong indications that his autobiography is, fi is fictionalized. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't trust Rent Trent Reznor really as far as I could throw him because he seems like a sleazebag to me. So I don't know why so many people are touting him and his opinion of Manson. <laughs> But anyway, that's just my, I don't know, I could be Trent Reznor fans, you can come after me on that and tell me I'm wrong. I don't know, that's just always been my impression of the guy was that he was a douchebag, but maybe he's not. I still like the music. Uh, but, but where was I going with that, uh, other than him being a douchebag? Um... Uh, so, oh yeah. So anyway, he said that, that, that it was fictionalized, that the things that were written about him, particularly the thing about sexually assaulting someone was fiction. And you might say, well, yeah, he's going to say that. But I, I did research on this. Like I looked up like reviews of the book when it came out and what people were saying about it and how there were all of these people who were in the book and not necessarily just depicted negatively, but all these people who were like, yeah, that couldn't have happened then because he wasn't even there or, you know, like these big errors in the book. And here's the thing you have to understand, too is that his autobiography was ghostwritten. And look, when whenever a book says, I, I have some experience, let me just say I have some experience in this industry, 
Uh, and whenever a book is ghostwritten, it's basically like, I hate to say it, but it's basically like saying like written by with like maybe, you know, with some stories. This is what happens is that the, yes, the, the subject will tell some stories, but the ghostwriter will really often embellish it a lot, especially if it's someone sensational, like a rock star, a rock star, right? Like this is not the memoirs of the president or some of, you know, former president or something. So here's the thing. It was done, this, this, the ghostwriter was, was Neil Strauss. And I don't know if you've ever heard of Neil Strauss's book, uh, The Game. But anyway, if, if you have, you'll understand it's very much written the same way with these really outlandish, crazy stories, probably most of which didn't happen. Anyway, my point, and I'm going to speak more softly because I'm keeping someone up, I think, uh, next to me. Uh, so I'm sorry if you have to adjust the volume, but I will be speaking more softly here. Maybe you'll like it better, actually. The person who told me they didn't like my vocal fry. I, I really do try. I'm kind of like uh, A.H. in that I, I do try to lower my voice because actually I do speak in a high-pitched voice. But anyway, enough of that bullshit. Back to what we're talking about here. So Neil Strauss, uh, yeah, so he wrote The Game and has all these outlandish stories about his time as a, a player, so to speak, in the sex and dating world. And so he, you know, he was interviewing uh, Manson, after Manson had finally, you know, hit it big uh, in the music industry, he worked for, Strauss worked for Rolling Stone, and he interviewed Manson. And it was through this interview and the two of them striking up a friendship that they decided that they would write this book. And Manson has said in interviews that his intention was to basically try to create a character much like David Bowie created a character. Let's look at this clip from... Um, a Larry King interview from, I don't know, a year or so ago. Tell me how this, <laughs> how this thing came, tell me the shtick. How did you become Marilyn Manson? Well, I, we might have this in common. I was uh, moved to Florida with my father, and my first job that I could get, I conned my way into becoming a music journalist in Florida, so I interviewed a, a lot of people. Where, in Miami? Yeah, yeah, in Miami. It was a magazine called 25th Parallel. And by the time I was 19, I was a senior editor, and I was also most of the other writers. So the very first interview with Marilyn Manson was conducted by Brian Warner. So you interviewed yourself. Yeah, and I didn't have any songs yet. So I sort well, of set that deadline. How did you come up with the Marilyn Manson thing? Well, it was the obvious. Uh, watching, uh, you know, at the time, all the Phil Donahue's and Jerry Springer before Jerry Springer, but you know, the, the fact that I was born in 1969, and that was the year that the Beatles. You know, Charles Manson and uh, Marilyn Monroe. I just remember as a kid, Marilyn Monroe, fake name, Charles Manson, fake name. He puts the two together. It's like abracadabra. And it really describes American culture altogether. Marilyn Manson, you've got dut light and dark. And but you take the name of a notorious villain. Well, she wasn't a villain. No, he. <laughs> Good line, Marilyn. <laughs> now, how did the makeup come about? Why do you, why the lipstick? Why glass where I can see myself talking to you? Well, the lipstick's good, though, because then if you come home with lipstick on your collar, if you wear a white-collar job, man, then you don't have to, you know. Good thinking. See, it's, it's always going to keep the... But, I mean, wh why why, no, I, I, why did you go this route? Being a fan of Bowie, uh, Prince, Alice Cooper, of course, and, and even Madonna, um, I don't know. I think it's probably, you know, I, I wrote a book uh, before I was famous, really, an autobiography, and... Uh, and that sort of turned me into being more popular by making the book. It was sort of what Bowie did with Ziggy Stardust, who came to America and said that 
he was something bigger than he was. So again, you know, uh, do we take the autobiography, the autobiography at face value? I think that given the fact that not only that this is what Manson has said about it, but also the nature of the ghostwriter. And I've, you know, I have read some of the autobiography. I didn't have time to read the whole thing, um, but I've read some of the autobiography and I've also read some of the game and it just sounds like the same kind of stuff, honestly. Um, just, you know, obviously more disturbing in the Manson uh in the Manson book. And then of course we have all of these people who claim who know, who should know because they're t discussed in the book or things that they knew happened that they were around to see uh, were discussed in the book and they've said that it's fiction. So we don't know for sure. And I'm not totally dismissing the autobiography either. I'm just saying again, that the muddy, the waters are muddy in this whole affair, you know, and I, I have to say, actually, I'm, you know, if I'm going to talk about how the women need to be taking responsibility for their actions and their part in things, I think, of course, it is a valid thing to to recognize that, you know, that in some ways this what what Marilyn Manson is experiencing, even if it is unjust, if it turns out to be unjust, what he is experiencing, it is kind of the a side effect of the kind of status that he has pursued of being the ultimate envelope pusher, the ultimate freak, the ultimate crazy, the satanic, you know, disturbing, whatever, put in whatever words you want. And he has certainly lived his life in a way that is, that has shown great, great disregard for the, um, the rules and the mores that most of us mere mortals have to abide by. And that's why so many people look up to him too, right? Because he's, he's that kind of Nietzschean uh, symbol. But my point being is, is that, uh, you know, uh, look, there are realities in this world. There are just, there's cause and effect. And I don't like it often <laughs> any more than anyone else does. But if it, it does merit being said that if you were going to spend decades presenting yourself to the world as Marilyn Manson has presented himself to the world, it is not surprising when eventually it catches up with you and people take it seriously. And so I do want to say that. And, and please, you know, those of you who I'm not I'm not I'm not changing my tune on this. I'm not saying that he deserves to be canceled and I'm not saying that he's guilty. And I see, like I said, contradictions everywhere for everyone and things that don't make sense. And, and so, you know, again, I just, just not a settled case and people are making it out. In my opinion, they're making it seem as if it's a settled case and that, you, you know, you're crazy or, um, you're, you're sexist or you, uh, you're, you're violent, you're, you're committing some kind of a psychological violation against assault victims by not taking these stories at face value, especially given the number of accusers. But the thing is, you know, again, I went through again, uh, just the other day, all of the different accusations that are, I know, and I know there's a number of them, all right? Um, I, I went through them all, and there's something about, I have to say, there's something about pretty much every one of them that I find problematic. And I'm not going to go through all of them. I wish that I had time. I thought about doing that, actually, but I just, I just don't have time, and I, um, and I do want to move on to other topics with my videos. But, uh, you know, just like what I've done talking about Esme's um, interviews and testimony, I mean, I feel like you can see these kinds of, of flaws in the others. And I, I know that 
I know that assault victims don't have to have like perfect stories. Okay, I get that. But again, I am tired of these cliches that that make people afraid to speak their mind and to speak from their gut. And there are things that just personally me, that in my gut, they don't feel right about this. 